Hello, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm Laurel Thompson, and I'm excited to bring you an interview with Brett Dubner. Brett is concert soloist on the viola, and as stated in his bio, Brett has redefined the role of solo artist and has given the viola a new standing in the world of classical music with his virtuosity, commitment to championing new music, and his mentoring of this generation's young artists. Brett has been quite busy during the pandemic, putting his time to good use in recording five new albums, two of which we'll be speaking about today, his album Mother Earth and his album Transfiguration, featuring the music of composer Stanley Grill. You actually enjoyed a little bit, a little snippet of one of those tracks in the intro music that was Mother Earth, the title track of that album, and we will hear the rest of it a little bit later. Brett spoke about his process in recording these albums and their inspirations, as well as his approach to the viola, which I found very insightful and helpful, some helpful tips for all violists out there, and I'm sure for other string players as well. We also spoke about some practice routine ideas, which I know everyone is always interested in learning more about. And we discussed his attitude and philosophy around this journey that is a career in music and some tips for how he approaches setbacks and keeps his passion and motivation strong. It was very enjoyable, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. I found his attitude towards music and life very relatable, and I loved all the vivid imagery he used to describe music and being a musician. I suppose as musicians, we're in the business of expressing the inexpressible, and he does a wonderful job through his instrument, but also in this interview. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did and we'll check out his website, repdubner.com, as well as his albums and his teaching materials as well. Uh, he just offers such a host of opportunities for education and for inspiration. So please enjoy. Hello, Brett Dubner, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. How's it going over there? Very good. How are you, Laurel? I'm doing fine, and we were just chatting a little bit before we uh, started rolling here. And so you're on the East Coast. Maybe tell us where we're speaking to you from. I am actually uh, living in New Jersey, um, very close to New York City. So okay. um, it's a great place to live. <laughs> Easy to get into the city, I suppose, if you need to, and uh, easy to get out, I guess. You got it. That's the world. <laughs> it's kind of my situation with San Francisco as well. And I understand you were born in San Francisco? Yeah, I was born in Berkeley, lived in Walnut Creek. Nice. So I'm in your old stomping grounds, and I've only been to New Jersey once, but um, I... I vaguely remember passing through there, so I'll have to come back and, and check it out more. But um, so you're a violist, and I think most people listening to this would know what a viola is. But just in case someone's a little bit shaky on what a viola is, how do you answer that question? Because I think everyone who's played viola has to at some point answer that question to someone who just doesn't know, right? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, I like to it as the um, 
soprano, alto, tenor, bass of a choir. Uh, we're the alto voice. So it's, you know, something a little bit larger than a violin, but not nearly as large as a cello. So um, it's just a little bit deeper. And the strings are the exact same strings as the cello, although they're one octave higher. So um, it's actually a, a wonderful color, uh, the, the viola. Um, and uh, I, I love playing it. I was first a violinist for probably 20 years of my life, and then I switched in college to the viola and um, never looked back. That's wonderful. That is similar to my story, although I still consider myself a violinist first. But I was curious what drew you to the viola in particular. Was it just um, they needed more violas, or there was something about the sound and the colors? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I was at Eastman um, uh, on violin. I was my professor's uh, TA, and I wasn't exactly the worst violinist there. It was more that I just fell in love with the timbre and the size of the viola. Um, I love the sonority, and I love all of the, the variety of colors that you can get out of the viola. Um, so that was sort of what really attracted me to, to that sound world. And I have to say, listening to some of these recent albums that I was able to enjoy, the Mother Earth album and Transfiguration, um, which we'll speak about in a moment, but there is a sense, like I can tell that maybe you came from a a violin background. There's a sense of, I suppose, maybe in general, when I've I've heard viola, I know that it's a viola. There's um, like a certain mellowness I suppose in a lot of players and which is beautiful and um, both of these albums have um, a lot of space to them but then there's some moments where it's um, quite animated and I felt like gosh this could be easily a violin like there's no sense of um, I guess suppose like struggle struggle on the instrument you know to to play just as fast and I think sometimes maybe people think that the viola can't sort of step up as much as a violin, but I mean, obviously you have proven that wrong. <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're touching on so many subjects um, that I love to talk about. Um, one of them is this sense that it is institutionalized and accepted that a viola should sound like they can barely play. And I just don't <laughs> think that's correct. No, at not all. at all. Um, I think one of the problems with a lot of viola players, especially when they're young, is that they tend to choose an instrument that is way too big for them. Mm. And I think for that is, unfortunately, their their goal or their motive is to sound like a cello. And if that was the case, they should learn the cello because mm-hmm. it's nothing like the, the viola is a lot closer to the violin in size and timbre. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons violists are often set up with literally two strikes at the very beginning. <laughs> um, and so what happens is incredibly poor posture, bad habits, all of these things become the norm and almost accepted as a rite of passage, which I think is crazy. Um, so with my students at Queens College, I always try to make sure that they have an instrument that they can actually handle just like a violinist or a cellist. There's really no reason you should play a viola where your left arm is completely straight 
and you can't use your fourth finger and you can barely vibrate and playing double stops is a complete figment of one's imagination. If that's the problem, then you have a, a big viola that should just simply be thrown away and get a smaller one. Yeah. All of the great solo violas of yesteryear, Paul Doctor, William Primrose, they played on 15-inch violas, very small violas. In fact, the seven violas that uh, Strad, Stradivarius made were 16 and, and a quarter. Uh, it's quite small. And, and so I think that's one of the major reasons for all of the problems that violists have, whether it's witting author of thousands of viola jokes or just unfortunately the the sole benefactor of their local chiropractor it's all because they're too big that makes perfect sense to me and um, I'm curious if you have a method for sizing students on a viola I mean you know as kids are growing up through the different violin sizes we're looking at arm length and finger length and you know width of knuckles and all of this business and would it be the same for viola (laughs) I, well, first of all, I think it's the same. You, you're going to play the viola in the same location that you're going to play the violin, right? Mm-hmm. Resting on your left collarbone. So there's no reason you should hold the viola with the scroll pointing down towards the floor. Um, you know, th- there's really no reason. If you look at one of my favorite violists, William Primrose, he was a violinist, and um, Isai was his teacher. Um, and it was suggested to him that he switch to viola. Um, he gets such a great sound. Um, I, it's also unfortunate because whenever someone says, oh, you play in tune, you must have been a violinist. Mm-hmm. It's such a sad comment because mm-hmm. really there are so many amazing violists these days who even started from scratch on the viola and they have great technique. Um, but to answer your question regarding finding the right size, I think the most important thing is what I mentioned, your left arm should not be completely extended. Also, it's so important to get a light instrument. Very often, um, violins made in, in other countries like China or um, ordered, you know, like online, mm-hmm. they're very thick wood. Um, so you really need to get one that is as light and thin as possible. That'll also help with your, um, you know, the physical challenges of something that's a little bit larger than a, a, a violin. Um, but for, for very young kids, you know, ten, um, if they want to play viola because they love the sound, you know, there may have been a time where it was suggested, no, you should first play violin and then switch over. But I, I don't really hold fast any one way. I think it really depends on the person. So if they're too small to handle a, a, a larger viola, then get a 14-inch viola and put a string on it. It's not going to sound as good. But, um, you know, once you get to the 15-inch or the 15-and-a-half-inch, it'll sound like a viola. Yeah, mine is um, 15 and three-quarters, and I was kind of looking for something that would be big enough that I wouldn't think that I'm playing violin and forget that I'm reading alto clef and this sort of thing. Like I wanted something that would feel yeah. slightly different, but not be huge. And, um, that, right. that, that size seemed okay. Yeah. And also the size is just one element of this. The fact that you'd have different strings on it changes the timbre. You're not going to have an E string. You're going to have an A string. And instead of the lowest string being a G, it'll be a C. So that changes the timbre as well. Another thing that I think of when it comes to 
sound production on the viola is that I, I like to think of the viola to the sound of a mezzo-soprano as opposed to an alto. Mm. Um, very often students, especially in college, that's when they often switch to viola. They're so um, lured to the sound of the cello. They want the darkest sound possible. And the problem is, uh, unless you're playing all by yourself, if you're playing with anyone else, you're completely covered. Mm-hmm. So that, that one sound, that sort of gossamer, uh, velvety, green, rich, Von Williams sound that everyone thinks of as the only sound that make, is, is the one sound that you should kind of avoid because you'll always be covered up. So I'm always focusing on my contact point, making sure I'm not playing on the side of my bow hair, but that I'm playing with a flat bow and that my bow is very close to the bridge so that it projects. Yeah, I was going to say, I was checking out some of your videos and was noticing the sounding point being closer in maybe than average and um, thinking, yeah, that's that's probably a, a big part of, of that sound, you know, cutting through. And I think that's what I was noticing on your recent albums I got to check out here. Um, there was the... Um, Arvo part. Uh, actually, I think you had a couple on there we can chat about, but, um, the fraternas. And of course we've heard that. Yeah. Fratres. Thank you. Um, we've heard that on violin and I was, before I'd listened to it, I was thinking, okay, how's this going to go on viola? And it just, you know, it cut right through and, um, it's, it's worthwhile, I guess, to, to just maybe chat slightly about, um, the difference here in, in like a solo violist, right? Because uh, a lot of times mm-hmm. these folks are getting into viola and then they're in a quartet or they're buried in the back of the orchestra or something. But there is a different, I suppose, for any any sort of string player, a difference um, or singer or, you know, any sort of instrumentalist, I suppose, in being a soloist versus a, um, an ensemble player, right? And um, I'm, I'm curious how you think about that and, and approach that. Well, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I've had the great privilege of playing in wonderful orchestras. I used to play with the London Symphony, Rochester Philharmonic, New Jersey Symphony. Um, <clears throat> and I've also been in two professional string quartets. And, and frankly, I don't change the way I play when I'm in a large ensemble. I don't all of a sudden convert to a diffused kind of blah sound where I'm over the fingerboard and no mm-hmm. one can hear me. Um, that, so I don't change anything. For me, it's all about uh, focused sound, contact point. Mm. If you're playing in a quartet, you, you should play with in a way to be heard, or else why play, right? Yeah. I've, I've never been a fan of air viola style. I know in many orchestras, there is this culture, well, you shouldn't be heard. But if you ever heard the Berlin Philharmonic, the very last chair violist is an absolute monster. They all play tons of sound. All of the big orchestras are just all supremely gifted violists, and they all play with a very focused attention to tone and clarity. So I think cutting through um, is perhaps the wrong way of thinking about it. It's really about playing with the focused sound. Mm. I find that I can actually play with more colors if it's clear. It, it would be very similar to um, having this interview but I decide to put my hand in front of my mouth. Mm-hmm. If I do that right now, you can see how it sounds a little dampened now. Mm-hmm. Why would a violist 
use that sound. That's just nutty, right? right? So I can actually create darker colors if my voice is clear than if I just put uh, a tablecloth over it and call that a viola sound. Right. So these are all sort of, I think, institutionalized problems with the viola that have been plaguing us for, you know, a long time. It's, it's just <laughs> yeah. not, not how I play, not how I teach. <laughs> and I guess, yeah, thinking about a focus sound... Within that, yeah. you still have all of that variety of color and dynamics, and yeah. that's yeah. what you can use in order to blend with the group. Right. Yeah. You were talking earlier before before we went online that a lot of your audience are amateur players and teachers, which is wonderful because they're such an important segment of the music world. Um, when I do master classes, I will talk about how does one play louder? And um, I'll go through all of these ways to make it louder. If you want it to be louder, play with the flathead. If you want to make it even louder, play closer to the bridge. If you want to make it even louder still, use a faster bow speed. And, and if you want to make it even louder, then vibrate. And then if you want to make it even louder, vibrate faster. But I never say press. Mm -hmm. pressing doesn't make it up it just makes it sound pressed <laughs> right squashes the string <laughs> right want to do that right. well let's chat a little bit about these albums that you've put out um okay so one really exciting thing that i i found in reading your bio was um like all of these pieces that have been written for you or dedicated to you and I have to say, for me, I started playing viola when I got a viola student in my late teens, and I taught her on my violin for the first year or so, and um, and then I got a viola and and you know really started diving into that. And I have to say, for the first um, several years, I felt like okay, there's this other instrument that sounds slightly deeper. It sounds beautiful, but um, what's kind of its place? And it wasn't until I started discovering all of this more recently written viola material that it started to make sense to me. Because I suppose just playing, you know, violin music on the viola, just the keys are changed and sound slightly weird to me. You know, this sort of thing. And uh, it was just right. so exciting to read your bio and hear about these um, these newer pieces and your collaborations with different composers and stuff. So um, I, I don't mind which album we speak about first, but um, if you want to yeah. run with that and, and just tell us a little bit about the process of um, making these albums and um, and yeah, playing new music. Um. <laughs> That's a big topic. Um, yeah. <laughs> the topic of doing recordings is one. The topic of working with living composers is one. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the um, just to briefly talk about recordings as a as a an exercise um, during the pandemic era that we're all in. Um, it was actually a great opportunity to go into the studio and um, and do some recordings that I've been wanting to do. Music that's compiling up and all that. Um, and so it was actually a great time for me to, to do that. Well, I found myself making five new uh, recordings, and um, wow. three of them uh, actually submitted um, for Grammy consideration. Who knows what will happen, but 
it's really something I'm proud of because I had some great colleagues that I worked with and some amazing composers. So it's really exciting to, um, you know, play my part in adding new repertoire for the viola. And what does your, so in collaborating over the pandemic, um, I guess I'm curious what your pre-recording preparation process would look like maybe in an average time when we're not dealing with this. And then what did that look like during the pandemic? Like, were you actually able to get together with um, your pianist or, you know, how did this work? Well, um, it was really no different um, pre or post pandemic because, um, you know, uh, we were, unless we were vaccinated, we would make sure we had negative tests and we would Mm -hmm. mask up and we would rehearse with, you know, lots of distance between us um, and actually do live performances, whether they were live streamed or in, in a large space with a very few people. But um, uh, in general, I don't really think of my recording process to be any different this year or 20 years ago. Um, So to answer your question, I do find that performing a program beforehand is really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've done several concerto recordings with orchestras where we all come together and record without performing and that's always a little bit of a, a um, an unhappy uncomfortable experience because I think everyone benefits from that organic um, experience of performing and then when we go into the studio afterward it's quite easy um, so when I'm doing recordings with piano um, it's the same way it's really helpful to have performed so the most um, recent CD that I'm really, really proud of um, is called Mother Earth. And on this, this CD, other than the music of Arvo Pertz and uh, Ola Yelo, the other pieces were all written for me. And actually a couple were written during the pandemic era. So the, um, what I tried to do with that recording was to create a, a continuity of theme. Um, and for me, the whole, um, I guess for me, the, the, the issue with the, the pandemic was how do, we, how do we turn this into a positive opportunity for us to be introspective, self-reflective, um, kind of see where we're going, where we came from, where we are. And it was in some ways a real chance to, to be not only globally, I recall the first few months when literally the entire globe stayed at home. There were these amazing NASA photographs from outer space showing how clear the sky was circling the the Earth. And it made me think even the globe is getting a a, a restart button or a refresher, um, if only it would continue. But um, Mm -hmm. I think on, on a global and on a very personal spiritual level, uh, you know, very cataclysmic events that happen every hundred years, such as a pandemic, are of course traumatic and horrible for so many. But for, for others, it's a chance to really kind of, you know, take in and acknowledge and, and be thankful for what's going on in our own lives. And so it was a chance for me to reflect and see where I wanted to go. And these recordings, especially Mother Earth, 
turned out to be more of an autobiography than uh, a comment on COVID. Um, and so I think when I started listening to the CD through that lens, it became even more powerful, almost difficult for me to listen to at times. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so many of the, the pieces have such a rich history of, of personal growth for me and relationship with the composers because the composers are very dear friends. And so it's, it was really like a, uh, uh, a, like, like a sonic memoir in a way. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I felt like that album, mother earth, there are so many beautiful melodies near, um, the first track there. Um, Zayd and Zizi, I think is pronounced. Very beautiful melody. And another one, just as, you know, just the beauty, like, just imagine like the beauty of earth, be- beautiful natural places. Also the, um, the movement of the stone rose, Madison. I found that just so, so beautiful. And, and then so many moments too of like, just sort of this, um, like a struggle, you know, felt like, um, really this going back and forth between, um, just the calm and the beauty and yeah, like this kind of the cataclysm or the, um, upheaval, you know, and, um, in the end, the Spiegel and the Spiegel just felt like such a nice, I mean, it's so meditative that piece and just such a nice, um, sort of right. calm ending, which at the same time, maybe, you know, asks a question like, where are we going next? Right. And well, you know, Spiegel in Spiegel means mirror in mirror. So imagine right. um, two mirrors facing each other. You can kind of look forever into a reflection and it keeps mm-hmm. going. And so in, in a way, um, that was uh, the piece I wanted to end the concert with or, mm-hmm. or the, the, the CD with. Mm-hmm. As a way of posing the, the the question, you know, this is a great time for us to reflect about where we've come from and where we'd like to go and start making choices in our lives that put us in those directions and stop making choices that don't point us in those directions. <laughs> Absolutely. And so if it's, if it's okay with you, um, I would love to share a couple of these tracks within the podcast episode and um, if so, if you had any favorites that you would like to talk about a little bit more in depth, um, where they've come from, just the kind of the process of discovering them or working with the composer. I love all the pieces. Um, it would I be would hard to, to choose. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really, I think one of the pieces that I really love is called Remember, mm-hmm. and it's by Judith Markovich. And she's from Nashville. She's, I think, other than Argo Peric, the only composer I've never met, although we've spoken much on Zoom and, you know, online. Mm-hmm. And she's since then written a concerto for me as well, and uh, a piece for uh, three-movement solo viola piece, et cetera, et cetera. But um, her piece is called Remember, and it has chimes in it. And I love the, the, the idea of chimes because... Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if you ask someone, if you hear chimes, what does that mean? It could mean everything from uh, someone in the Old West, uh, a person ringing a cowbell, time to come in and have dinner, and everyone sits around the table and reflects, 
or perhaps it, it's a, a busy city at noon. You'll hear church bells at noon, um, or just uh, chimes suggest a clock, which is time. <laughs> you know, uh, your, your own personal time on this planet, whatever. And so I think also it symbolizes to me um, when time stops, when time stood still, and people were dying at a, a horrible rate each day. So the peace remember to me is a way to kind of stop and reflect on mm. what's been lost and how we can somehow remember those people and turn their life's end into something positive for us so that we can carry on when they couldn't and make the world better. So I love that piece, remember. Wonderful. Here we go. This is track four from Mother Earth. It's performed by Brett Dubner and Allison Brewster Franzetti on piano. This is a song written by Judith Markovich, Remember. Thank you. 
Probably another piece that would be fun to listen to is the namesake of the CD, uh, Mother Earth, Madre Terra. And that's by one of my dearest friends, Maurizio Bignone, who is from Palermo in Sicily, Italy. And he, uh, he's a great friend. He's written so many amazing pieces for me. And this, this piece, uh, Mother Earth, really um, was not inspired because it predates that by a few years. It's really uh, Maurizio's passion for world advocacy, uh, um, preserving this one home we have, the, the planet Earth. Yeah. Because if we don't take care of it, we're going to be homeless as a globe. And that's, that's a problem because we haven't yet figured how to space travel. So we really have to take care of our backyard. And so that's really the inspiration for that piece. So you have a calm quality. You also have a very excited, chaotic quality. And then you have a, a hopeful, uh, relaxing, uh, almost angelic quality at the end. All right, so let's check out track number nine from Brett's Mother Earth album. This is the title track titled Mother Earth, a piece written by Maurizio Bagnone and performed by Brett along with his pianist Allison Brewster Franzetti. Enjoy.
Wow, what a dynamic piece. Mr. Bignone has really outdone himself in writing this, and your playing is fabulous, just conjuring all these facets of Mother Earth from the calm and sweet, maybe I imagine like a, a, a peaceful, misty morning sunrise, all the way through the drama and chaos of maybe a storm and, and probably everything in between. Thank you so much for sharing these pieces. Um, should we go over to the Transfiguration CD and speak a bit about that? And that, as I understand, that's all you playing. Is that correct? The different parts? It's, it's funny, actually, because about 10 or yeah, ten years ago, I did another CD called Transfiguration mm. with my guitarist. I had a duo, um, and uh, it was called Duo Fresco. And, mm. and our only CD was called Transfiguration. But this particular CD uh, celebrates the music of Stanley Grill, who is a very good friend of mine. Um, and um, it, it, it's, it's an incredible uh, uh, project. He, he composed three works for multiple violas. One piece is for two violas, one is for three, and then one is for four violas. Wow. And um, uh, his own musical language is sort of steeped in a, uh, a Renaissance world, um, pre-Baroque. Um, so you have wonderful mm -hmm. parallels, fourths and fifths, and um, almost sounds like uh, Gregorian chants at times. And yet he also is a romantic at heart. So you'll hear some, some sounds from, from uh, England as well. Um, so... It's a wonderful uh, CD that I'm really proud of. Um, that was one where we were in the midst of the pandemic. And Stan, who has, um, uh, he would be considered at risk just due to his asthma. He could not be at the studio. So I would be in the recording studio. The engineer was in his room. And then there was a big plexiglass, of course, between us. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Stan would be on a laptop watching and listening. And after each track, I would ask him, you know, was that okay? And, you know, so it was, it was very much all hands on deck, but from different locations. Um, it, what was interesting about that CD for me was obviously I've never done a recording of just many uh, simultaneous tracks of just me at the same time. Um, and, you know, because of the pandemic, this app called Acapella became the rage, and yeah. everyone was making everything from Christmas carols to, <laughs> to just, you know, choirs. Yeah. I mean, it was a great resource. It was a great resource. It and is a so cool app. Yeah, I played with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I found myself doing some of that um, with a, a jazz album that I ended up doing also, where um, as, the, as the arrangements would come to me, I'd have uh, the drummer and the bass player and the pianist lay down their tracks, and then I would put it all together. But for this album, um, Transfiguration, we actually took it a step further and produced the album in the recording studio, and um, it was so much fun. Um, it was very exhausting because for each piece, let's say the, 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 the namesake piece, Transfiguration, was for four violas, and it's in three movements. So that's 12 tracks that I have to play. Yeah. I, I play usually the lowest voice first, and then that would be played back to me with a click track. 
so that I was exactly with it. But I also was, you know, listening to, to my own other part. And it was kind of like playing chin music with myself. So it was, it, it, it involved a lot of different skill sets that I had never really tried before, mm-hmm. but it actually wasn't very difficult because, um, you know, uh, it, it's wonderful when you find a colleague that you feel phrases, you breathe the same way. Um, needless to say, um, I breathe quite well with myself, so it wasn't too hard to do. <laughs> I've found the same thing as well. I've uh, recorded different tracks with um, multiple violins, multiple violas, you know, violin and viola, this sort of thing. And yeah, it's like, whereas someone else coming in, cause I've also recorded with like a string quartet in the room and having to figure out how, how, like you say, we're all going to breathe together is part of that process. And with overdubbing yourself, there's just there's none of that. I, I know what I did, right? I know what, how I'm going to phrase the next thing. And, and it's, I suppose, the most challenging um, part of it for me, and, and I'm curious what you think about this, but um, the most challenging part in those situations for me has been making sure, I suppose, it doesn't sound just, um, you know, like those, uh, like if you overdub your voice, maybe, and it just kind of sounds um, like too much of the same thing, like making it different enough so that maybe there's a slightly different color or um, I've, I've had situations where the sound engineer put the mic in a slightly different spot to pick up a slightly different color or something like that. Did you go through kind of a similar process with, with those sorts of challenges? Or You, you bring up excellent points, and um, it just kind of goes to show what a great musician you must be. I, I hope to hear you sometime. But I would say... Um, if anyone has played chamber music, then you understand that your role is specific and it varies and fluctuates from second to second. So if I'm recording a string quartet, um, let's say of Dvorak, of course there are times when I should be playing in a more projecting character because I have the melody. And then there are times where I have to play more um, rhythmic or pulsing and sometimes I just have to provide a color of or texture. So of course, as your role varies, your 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 complete sense of how to make sound varies. So if I'm doing a piece for four violas, um, it's it's no different. You know, I study the score very often. The lower, the fourth viola, let's say, will be the lowest pitch, the lowest range. And then the very highest pitch will very often be the melody. So, you know, it's no different than reading any score. You know, you you really think about what is the most important voice, um, and then you play a little bit differently for that. Now, some of the times in Stan's music, especially in this album, he really wants equal sonority, and that's its own texture, which is also very appealing, very much like uh, a cappella singing groups, one of my favorite groups is Voce 8. I think I have all of their albums on my phone. Um, I just love their uh, ability to, to um, create such a great tapestry of voices. I, I love their sound. Mm. Um, so that's really no different for me when I'm playing for four violas and I'm playing all the parts. It, yeah, it's, it's me every time, but I'm a different person for each voice too. Playing a slightly different role, yeah. 
Of course. Yeah. yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I was um, happy for you to say that he has this Renaissance sort of Gregorian chant uh, influence, because as I was listening to this, it's like, yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of modern, but it sounds pretty ancient too. Like there's, there's just something about that sound. It's, it's nice. A, it's almost like the, uh, the, like, like, like pre-triadic harmony. Yeah. Before Bach. Yeah. You know, it's you had Jacques there, you have the Machot, mm-hmm. you had composed that are, you know, 1500s. Um, and that is sort of Stan's world. Mm-hmm. Um, in two weeks, I go to Europe and I play Stan's viola concerto called The Four Elements with an orchestra in Estonia. And that'll be a lot of fun to, to do because that piece is also very much in a non-vibrato hmm. uh, world. The Four Elements uh, are, of course, obviously wind, fire, earth, and, uh, and um, water. And so for each of these pieces, he tries to um, capture the essential elements of those you know, but not from a modern standpoint, but more from like an ancient alchemist world, which is really interesting. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that era of music was one of, one of my very earliest, um, cassette tapes that was actually mine as a little girl. It was this, um, cassette tape called dance of the Renaissance. And I just loved that CD. I was probably by far the only kid <laughs> Who would be listening to that, you know, at at six or seven years old, right? But um, it's just so transportive. Yeah, I agree. Um, So if if we were to feature a clip here from from the Transfiguration album, was there a particular movement? Well, I love the entire album, but one thing that is significant about that album, Transfiguration by Stanley, is that that actual piece, the piece called Transfiguration, Mm -hmm. is also being submitted um, to the 64th Grammy in I, the category is called um, best new contemporary piece. Mm. And so hopefully it will get nominated because it, it's such a great piece. So I would say from that work, um, the third movement is one of my favorite movements. Um, it's very much a call and response. You have viola two, three, and four creating this very rich, almost like a, like a, a choral amen feeling. And then when it finishes that phrase, the first viola has this almost lonely quality that's very high. And then you have back and forth. It, it, you know, the, that comes to mind with that movement, movement mm. three of transfiguration. It's almost that people are uh, closing their eyes, maybe holding hands, remembering the warmth of the person that left them. And... They're humming together, and then somewhere in uh, in the clouds above them is the soul of that deceased person singing, and maybe even laughing and saying, "I'm okay. I, I see you, and I'm here." You have this amazing back and forth conversation between the material world and the spiritual world. I'm excited to check this out. This is the third movement on Dantino from Transfiguration for four violas, performed by Brett Dubner and written by Stanley Grill.
Wonderful. I love that imagery. That is always very helpful for me. I, I see music kind of almost like it's always some kind of movie soundtrack or something. Well, you know, it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, ask me again, I would give you a completely different picture that <laughs> literally just came by then. But um, that's how I teach with images, because to me, I'm sure you feel the same way. We're really just storytellers. And Absolutely. for whatever reason, chose the instrument that we chose, we then spend the rest of our lives trying to not let it get in the way of just singing in the shower. So I always tell my students, imagine if Yo-Yo Ma had played the flute. He would have been the world's greatest flutist because it's not the instrument, it's the person. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, the storytelling aspect and, and, um, I just, I, especially my beginner students, when, when I see their eyes sort of light up, when I first introduce them to the difference between major and minor is just incredible because most of them pick it up quite quickly, but occasionally they're like, does that really sound moodier with a minor key? But if we can take, um, sometimes I'll, I'll do a process where, you know, just taking a simple folk song that they might be learning and, and we'll switch it back and forth and maybe we'll add some different styles of bow strokes. And just when they see, oh, this is what drew me to this instrument, the ability to express and wow, so simply we can change that expression, you know, just by a few different notes or a few different bow strokes. It's, um, it's wonderful. And, and then we get to these more advanced levels and it's just, um, yeah, that's, there's, um, music, you know, just can be so rich and all encompassing, I suppose. Um, yeah. So, um, I'm curious, uh, I understand your viola is a more modern instrument and, um, I'm wondering what drew you to that instrument and, uh, the kind of the process of finding it maybe. Well, this instrument found me because the maker made it for me. Oh, wonderful. I've had many violas over the course of my career, and most of them have been very old Italian 18th century instruments or even 19th century Italian instruments or Viennese instruments. And this particular one was made for me by a very dear friend of over 20 years. He's the guy that I would take whatever viola I was playing on in the moment um, to him to get uh, adjustments, repairs, or whatever. And he he is not only a great luthier and a craftsman and a a repairman and a restorer, but he's also a wonderful musician as well. So um, um, he's known me for over 20 years, and, and so he's seen my career develop and my passion for playing solo viola music um, and he, he knew what I needed to, to, to play on. And so he made an instrument uh, basically designed for my own personal characteristics. That's amazing. And I imagine him seeing, you know, the adjustments that you wanted to have made to your other instruments over the years and, um, and then your process as, of developing, you know, as a musician over, over such a long time period. So I can imagine that would be an amazing fit, you know, to find someone who's able to create an instrument like that for you. Well, also the, uh, you know, earlier in the conversation, you talked about the viola size Mm -hmm. um, and how it has unfortunately plagued most violists. Um, um, And 
you know, he is uh, one of the major forces in my own decision to go with a smaller viola. And the, the, the rationale behind that, at least in my mind, is if you're more comfortable getting around, then you're going to play more relaxed. And if you're more relaxed, you have more colors. You can actually play very dark if you're relaxed. But if you're struggling with a big instrument that's perhaps too heavy or whatever, then it, you know, it's, there's all sorts of problems. So um, no one's ever told me I don't have a dark sound when I want to. Mm -hmm. But the key is for the viola to have a multitude of colors at your fingertips. And so one of the things we as storytellers, as musicians, should try to do is to always add colors, like adding a new crayon to our crayon box every day. Absolutely. And on that topic, I'm wondering, do you have a favorite bow as well that you use? I know people always talk about the instrument, but for me, it's like the, the bow is definitely at least half of the equation, right? I, I've been very fortunate to have some wonderful bows. Um, right now, I'm playing on a magnificent um, bow from Brazil hmm. that I've been using for about eight years, and it's sort of my my solo bow. I have a, a French bow that I'll use for chamber music where I don't need to, to play with such a, a brilliant quality but have more of a blendy sound. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I do agree with you that the bow is so important. It's so important to find the right uh, partner with, with your instruments. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of interesting to me that so often we just kind of, um, you know, students might, uh, until they know, you know, might just kind of forget and, oh, I guess we better buy a bow. Oh, we don't have a budget for a bow anymore. Oops. $50 bow, you know, and it's well, like, no, it's, it's really important. Student, of course, you want to get, yeah, when you're a student, you want to get as good a viola as you can, um, just because, you know, it, you know, obviously the viola is more important than the bow, but yeah. um, if you have a decent viola, you can get a better bow and make your viola sound better. But the other thing is that, um, you know, not all bows are the right match for the viola. If your viola tends to have a very dark sound naturally, you don't want to get a heavy bow with a lot of wood, like a very fat bow. Mm -hmm. You want to have a, a thinner wood, perhaps a little more um, a tighter camber, or even a heavy violin bow mm -hmm. to, to um, you know, neutralize the dark of the viola. Similarly, if you have a very bright viola, you want to go for a slightly darker sounding bow. So, and of course, you can also adjust the sound of the bow by how much hair um, is put on the bow and also um, you can change the camber the, the internal fiber strength of the of the wood so there's all sorts of things you can do to kind of create a perfect match or I should say a better match yeah. but um, there are so many great bows out there um, I would say for any really talented viola student if they really think they're going to go into music they should probably try to get as nice a viola as they can um, and then find a bow to match that. Absolutely. Yeah. I did a process with my violin several years ago. It took a whole year, but I wanted, I wanted a better bow and I 
students look at me like with wide eyes when I tell them I probably played at least a hundred bows throughout that year, just trying to find the bow that I wanted. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's just as much of a process. So when did you, um, decide you wanted to be a musician? Was there, was that something that developed over time or it was just like there was one experience or, um, situation that just sort of, it struck you? Um, I started playing the violin in fourth grade in the public schools, like most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I just never did anything else since then. The only thing that ever came even close to competing with um, that love was tennis. <laughs> but um, nice. I wasn't really, I was a good tennis player, but I wasn't good enough to like go into college. And, you know, being a professional tennis player is just like, you know, crazy. Uh, three of my kids are all are college athletes re- recruited for college, and it's it's um it's very similar to being a musician in terms of the dedication and the work ethic and and the goals and all that because just like being a musician, being a, a an athlete is is really about being an artist and there is no end game there is no goal. I tell my students, if you reached your goal, you set it way too low. And so when you're a, <laughs> yep. a, an athlete, you can always jump higher and go faster. So I tell my viola students, it's not about getting there. It's about going there. And mm-hmm. if you, you reach it, then it wasn't the right goal. So um, I've never really done anything else but play music. And it's always been my, my total life. <laughs> That's so wonderful. And yes, I completely agree about the musician versus athlete sort of, I mean, just how physical these instruments are, but then like you're saying, all of the work ethic and needing to, you know, find ways to stay motivated and, um, go for that next goal, not the end goal. Right. And, um, reading your biography there, there are just so many impressive accolades and different symphonies you've performed with, and um, even most recently, just congratulations on these um, Grammy getting um, submitted, I suppose, and hopefully nominated, right? But um, I'm curious what, if there's anything in particular, or maybe just a mindset, but um, what helps you stay motivated and positive when maybe you experience a setback or just something isn't going quite as as you would have um, anticipated or hoped? That's a great question. Um, maybe I'm just naive, but I, I never really think of my life as having setbacks. Um, you know, um, especially when you're an artist. And I know artist has sort of a lofty connotation, but I don't, when I say the word artist, I don't think of it in terms of a, a braggadocious way. It's just that's what it, you're an artist if your life is all about um, the arts and telling the story of the arts and projecting your passion for the arts to other people. Um, I think for me, um, obviously I have a, a set of goals. I'm always trying to improve my ability to connect with audiences. And that means improve my own playing. You know, there is a, a definite element of craftsmanship when it comes to playing in tune or working on your bow strokes, you know, all that boring stuff. But um, at the end of the day, it's really about telling a story. And so I um, decided about 12, 
13 years ago, what I really wanted to do was be a soloist. And I would rather play the Telemann Concerto with a community orchestra than sit in any orchestra. Because mm-hmm. for me, I'm, I'm happiest when my own personal voice is, is singing above, you know, with, with, with the support of an orchestra. But, you know, my voice is telling a story to an audience. Mm-hmm. That's when I am in my element. And I know there are many amazing violists out there, but I tell my students, especially as they begin to think about what options they have, I tell them it's really important to have a plan, decide what you want to do, and then start doing it. Because it's not about being the best at something, it's about loving what you do. If I had to be the best, then, then I wouldn't do it, because that's competition that is really not helpful. And it's also, you know, goals are traps, really. Um, You know, I really think of the the process of being a musician is sort of floating down a river, and every once in a while you come to this branch and you hold on to it for a little while, and that that branch may be a teacher. And when you soak up all what they have to say, then you let go and you continue to the current a little bit until you come to another branch, and maybe that branch is um, being in a quartet for a few years, and you, you soak up all that. And then you just keep going down this river of, of experience. So um, I don't think of setbacks. I don't look at what I did, if I could have done it differently, because we really had to go through everything we went through to be where we are. And it's totally unhelpful to wish I had done something. So I feel like I'm exactly where I need to be and where I want to be. And yes, I have huge dreams. I want to do everything I'm doing at a higher level. Um, and do more of it, but I'm, I'm pretty happy doing what I do. Thank you. That's very inspiring. I think a lot of, um, like when I've had students who've been struggling with such things, it's often like they're, they're in this sort of trap of comparing themselves with the next person, right? Most of the time, not even someone they know, maybe it's someone on YouTube, you know, (laughs) on the other side of the world. And, um, and I love the imagery of the river and, um, just that kind of journey, the process we're in the process, as long as we're still floating in the river and, um, experiencing, you know, new opportunities and, um, just continuing, right? Like I just see it as just such a wonderful, um, avenue for expression just all through life. Like we'll never get to the end. There will never be a day when we're like, we've, played all of the pieces and we've done it all, you know, there's always going to be something new to experience. And, um, I personally think that that's, that's wonderful that there isn't kind of an, the end of that road, you know, that would be so sad to me to, to get to the end. You definitely have to be a cup half full kind of person. Um, you know, uh, someone who is in, in, in an area, uh, like, in the, in the maths or sciences, you know, I mean, obviously science is evolving, but like the banking or the finance world, you know, two plus two is four mm-hmm. and tomorrow it's still four. You're done. But when you're learning a piece of music, um, you know, you're, you're of course trying to reach your potential. And even if you get to a point where you're playing it as good as you possibly can, that's only as good as you can at that moment. Mm-hmm. And, Tomorrow, you're older, and there's more experiences. And a year from then, there's more experiences. So 
there really isn't an end game. Um, I like to to think of that as actually taking a huge load of responsibility off my back to being perfect. I, I I'm far from perfect, and I don't think about. It. I don't even try to be perfect. I try to. Um, you know, every morning I practice my skills. I really do. At my age, I still practice every day, partly because I have a lot of music to prepare, mm-hmm. but I need to do, you know, my workouts. Um, and I love playing the viola. I love the sounds. And so for me, uh, I just enjoy the journey. And uh, as long as you um, find that to be um, its own reward, then you'll be fine because, frankly, talent is very overrated. A lot of people have talent, but what can really separate you from others is your drive and your passion and also your ability to find unique ways to not sell yourself but to to share your love of what you do with other people, whether it's through self-marketing or promotion or whatever, um, development. You know, those are all sort of business terms. And frankly, I think all musicians should, in college, take a business course. Frankly, everyone should business, so they all need to learn how to, you know, project themselves, talk to people, et cetera, et cetera. But especially musicians who tend to be more like ostriches. They sit in their practice room for four years and learn their Don Juan, and then they come out of school and the light's shining and they don't know where they are. That's not really going to help them. So um, for me... um, I think one of the reasons I've been, you know, relatively successful at playing with a lot of ensembles and and working on really cool pieces and all that is just because I'm so um, happy to do what I do, and I just can't wait to share it with the next conductor or the next audience. Hmm. So it just, yeah, the exuberance, and um, I mean, obviously you're needing to reach out or people reach out to you, you know, there's a networking involved in that. And that's what you're talking about with the business aspect. But um, yeah, I think when we're, when we have that passion, then opportunities find us. I mean, we're, and we're, we're seeking them. We're, you know, and that's so important because yeah, I've seen this as well. Like just musicians wanting to just, kind of practice or, or just want to want to play but then we also need that business aspect too so we can go out into the world and actually actually share with people um, that we want to share with do you have any other advice for musicians wanting to make a career of music I would say um, if you can close your eyes and imagine doing something that you would love to do more than anything in the world then open your eyes and say okay that's what I am and yeah, I'm not very busy at it at the moment, but that's what I am. And I'm going to start making decisions that point me in that direction. Um, I love to tell the story of the, of the genie and the lamp, but my story is a little different. I, mm. I like to suggest that someone is walking along the beach and they come across something shiny in the sand and they, they pull it out of the sand. They realize it's a lamp and they look around to see if anyone's watching and they decide, what the heck? And so they rub the, the, the lamp, and sure enough, a genie comes out. And the, the genie says, you have one wish, not three wishes, which means waste two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have one wish. Because how many times do you come across a, a college student doing a degree that isn't even what they want to do? It's their fallback. Why spend four years of your life and a lot of money um, on your backup 
<laughs> why not spend that time on your goal? You know, right. <laughs> so um, you know, it's like why? So um, that's what I tell people. And whenever I I pose that challenge to them, they usually become very very pale in their face. All the blood leaves their face. And I tell them it's that easy, you know. If you can imagine what you would love to do and know for a certainty that it will happen, what would it be? And then they say, oh, well then, what I really want to do is blah, blah, blah. And I said, good, then do it. Mm, I love it. Yeah. In all sorts of disciplines, right? We find people where, you know, they're working some job and then you ask them, yeah, is this what you always want to do? Well, actually... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's something completely different. You know, sometimes you're going to have to um, have that ultimate goal in the back of your mind, and sure. and yet you still need to eat or pay the rent or or right. whatever. So you, but but the thing is, having the courage to actually say out loud, "What I really want to be is a conductor." Then you're going to make different choices the next day. You're going to spend a little time on YouTube studying a conductor, or you're going to go to a festival where you can work with conductors. And you may still need to work at the pizza shop because you need to, you need food, you need to eat. That's fine. But it's not an, it's not an either or, but everyone needs to have a goal, a reason to get up in the morning. Um, to me, a, a very dear friend kind of posed it this way. Uh, imagine there's a cliff and two people walk up to the cliff, two different kinds of people. One person looks over the edge and says, hmm, that might hurt. And the other person says, oh, I don't care, and just jumps. Now, that doesn't mean suicide is in. What I'm saying is they Mm -hmm. both had parachutes, but one was, like, afraid, and one was like, you know, I have to do this. And it's that second person, that's the artist. Absolutely. And, yeah, everyone who, who I've known who's made that jump, um, it's been scary, you know, there's, there's, and I think society has a lot to do with that, you know, kind of the whole starving musician, that stereotype, I guess for myself early on, early on, um, a songwriter, my mom pulled me over to him and said, okay, my daughter wants to be a musician. What, what do you, what do you recommend? And he said, wear many hats. And then he explained what that meant and how, you know, like one day he's teaching, the next day he's writing a song, the next day he's performing, like all of these different avenues within music. And um, my mom looked at me like, okay, that sounds tough. And I'm like, yay, (laughs) I get bored too easily. I would love to do a different thing each day, you know, and that really stuck with me. Wear many hats. And I think it's really because actually it's, I would look at that as, excellent advice because that person um, obviously had has a dream but what they did was they realized that 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 one dream has many facets and so when you're teaching you're improving your own playing when you're working on your website you're increasing your chances of playing when you're practicing you're increasing your ability to play better so it's yeah. no different um, you know you have a goal you articulate what the goal is, and then you start making decisions that all point you in the same direction. So it's not even a compromise. Yeah. Um, uh, do other things. It's all. It all serves the greater the greater good, which is your ultimate goal, which is to be a storyteller. Absolutely, I completely agree. 
Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, all of it, you know, if you're passionate about it, all of it, even, you know, editing the website or editing the bio or something, you know, stuff that just doesn't seem like it's connected. Um, it is connected. It's, it's all, it's all part of that same picture. And, um, yeah, we enjoy, we can enjoy all of it. Um, I guess keeping that, that goal in mind, you know, that, uh, what that dream is. So, I just have a couple more questions, if you don't mind. I was just curious um, about your practice routine. You mentioned scales, and I know a lot of people struggle with coming up with like an ideal practice routine. I have some students who they want like um, a menu. You know, every day I want to know how long to practice each thing. And then some days, of course, are too busy to practice everything. So um, do you have like an ideal practice routine that just makes you feel like you're, you're ready for anything versus maybe kind of a more bare bones practice routine that allows you just to kind of keep, keep going, keep your chops up when you don't have as much time? That's a great question. I would say there really is no ideal when it comes to, you know, being in the arts. I, I would say that um, I don't have one set method. Um, my Every morning it's a little different, but I do tend to begin my day with scales. I tend to play scales slowly. I tend to um, play um, a lot of slurs, uh, meaning playing many notes on one bow. Mm-hmm. I find, just to get really technical for a second, one of the major challenges with young students through college and even adult amateurs is managing the bow. Um, the tendency is for people to use too much bow at the beginning and therefore they run out of bow. Mm-hmm. And so then what happens is they go on to the next note, whether it's time to or not. And so very often people are um, um, labeled as having bad rhythm when actually I'm sure they can count to four just fine. The real problem is they just ran out of bow. Mm-hmm. So that's something, that's one of my, um, uh, that's one of the things that I really um, think of when I play um, is bow usage, bow speed, bow division. And so that is sort of um, uh, part of my morning routine. Um, whether I have 15 minutes, one minute, or an hour to warm up, I'll, I'll always begin with scales, um, also to warm up the vibrato, um, and also to warm up... Um, the bow arm, the contact point, and all that. So I'm a, a firm believer in skills, and all of my students at the college where I teach um, always come to the lessons, and they just start playing skills without me asking because they know I'm going to ask. Hmm. So um, I think that's really, really important, playing skills. Um, I think it really, really helps us um, uh, communicate better on our instruments. Do you have a particular, like, a favorite scale method? Or, um, I mean, it's all... Different fingerings, right? The same, the same scales. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I uh, grew up with the Galamian method mm-hmm. and uh, cup flesh fingerings from violin days, mm-hmm. but it really doesn't matter um, what fingering you use, um, you know, because you're going to have to shift if you go high enough. So, mm-hmm. sh- so um, scales are a perfect way to work on our shifting, making sure our shifts are slow and light um, and not harsh or bumpy. Mm -hmm. So those are things that I do when I'm practicing slowly. Um, I'll do basic um, vibrato warm-ups sometimes. 
if I'm actually, um, you know, playing a lot, then I won't, you know, do a, 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 a slow vibrato exercise. That would be more if I'm, I've been away from the instrument for a couple of days. But I can't remember the last time I was away from my instrument for a couple of days, <laughs> maybe years. Mm. Um, so, you know, I would say um, regularity is really important. I would say for the students um, who is only practicing half an hour a day, um, uh, not practicing for two days and then practicing for an hour the third day is not as helpful as playing a half an hour every day. Things like that, I think, are kind of no-brainers. So I would say the regularity of touching the instrument every day is really helpful. Um, it increases your, your chances of practicing more if you're actually playing every day. Absolutely. Um, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So. Now, I tell my students the same thing. Like even if you just pick it up, play one thing, do it every day, and that will be better than you know a three-hour practice one day a week on the weekend or something. I used to put my violin under the covers with me and I practice without my bow, just like practice left-hand stuff. <laughs> mm, yeah, I did a lot of yeah, just even without my instrument, but in school, you know, the teacher would be droning on, and I would just be sort of thinking I'd have the piece in my head that I was working on and my, my left hand would be going, you know, I'd be thinking about it. Yeah. And I think that made a, a big difference actually. I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about, you know, anything in particular when I was doing that, just that I really wanted to go home and play. But um, yeah, I think yeah. just any practice like that can be helpful too. You mentioned um, my own specific routines. Probably the simple thing would be for people just to go onto YouTube and put my name in there. You could put like Brett Dubner scales or Brett Dubner masterclass or whatever. Um, and you're going to get, I, I don't know, I might have 600, 500 videos on YouTube. I have no idea anymore, but um, that, that's a good resource that people want to kind of get a sense as to how I play, how I practice, how I teach those kinds of things. Wonderful. And then you also, um, before we got on the call, you mentioned um, a virtual viola studio that you have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a couple years ago. I decided one summer to go through 10 of the major viola concertos. I know like, there are 10. No, there's more than 10. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, and um, so everything from Vivaldi to Von, no, Telemann, Von Hall, Stammet, Hofmeister, C.P.E. Bach, um, um, uh, uh, Walton, Hindemith, you know, all the, the basic concertos. And I go through the first movement of every one, and I basically play every single measure of each of these pieces, and I talk about the different challenges and what to look for here and how to practice this and uh, rhythms you can work on. And then I, I show musical ex uh, excerpts of the pieces and Sometimes I provide links to my own performances of these pieces. And um, so that's, that's been a pretty um, fun opportunity for um, especially college um, students, but also people who are teachers or parents. It's a great gift for a parent to, to buy my entire set for their kid who's learning the viola because then they, get, they own these classes. They're very often they're one-hour lessons. And... When you're studying with a teacher, let's say you're learning a new piece, it'll be probably three or four lessons per movement when you're, you know, there in, in person. Um, so that's like, you know, three, four months on a piece. But with these, you buy 
one lesson and you've got it. And I go through everything. And so you can refer to it forever and ever. So it's kind of a fun way to have a lesson that keeps on teaching Mm -hmm. (laughs) as it were. I love it. And where can people find out about that? So it'll be www. And it's Dubner, so D-E-U-B-N-E-R, and then V-V-S. So V is in Victor, V is in Victor, S is in Sam, dot thinkific. So T-H-I-N-K-I-F-I-K dot com. So that's the URL link. So if you click to that, dubnervvs.thinkific.com. If you click on that, it'll take you to Brad Dubner's virtual viola studio. That is one of the most effective ways for people who I will not have the pleasure of seeing in person see me work on all of the major viola concertos. Um, and I also include uh, a one-hour uh, special on how I do scales. <laughs> also. Wonderful. Yay. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, all right. So I will share that in the show notes and, um, just in general, how can people find out more about you and, um, and these albums, the mother earth and the transfiguration? Well, all of those albums and the over 20 other albums that I've done are all available on, you know, iTunes and CD baby and, um, uh, Spotify and, um, Amazon and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, you could probably just go to Amazon and put my name in there and you're going to get a bunch of CDs. Um, in terms of my concert schedule, um, you can go to my website, which is very simple, brettdubner.com. That way I can remember it myself. Um, and um, this next month I'll be in uh, Europe, uh, in Estonia, playing three works for Violin Orchestra. I'll come back in October. I'll be playing... Uh, and giving master classes in Boston, and then in Ohio, I'll premiere a new concerto with the Perrysburg Symphony. Um, November, I'm playing another new concerto with the Michigan Philharmonic. Um, so it's a pretty busy fall of teaching, playing recitals, master classes, and soloing with some wonderful orchestras. It's wonderful we're able to get back to some performing live. It's, I mean, it's still strange out there, right? But um, people are finding ways to make it work and, um, yeah, I hope those all go really well. It's, um, you said Estonia. Yes. Wow. Have you been there before that? That seems so just exotic, right? Um, I, I played in Russia and Ukraine and China and all over Europe and North and South America and Australia, Mm -hmm. but I've never been to Estonia. So I'm very excited about going. And I have many friends uh, from there, uh, the Yervi clan, Pablo mm-hmm. Yervi and Christian Yervi and Amy Yervi are friends of mine. So it'll be a lot of fun um, to, to, uh, to go there and play um, basically two viola concertos written for me and uh, a premiere of a new work being written just for that um, concert series. So it'll be a lot of fun. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. And just to be the first one to share this music, you know, ever <laughs> the premiere of, of, uh, of these pieces. That's so wonderful. Was there anything else that you're looking forward to coming up? Oh my gosh. Um, you but, mentioned a jazz album that uh, sounded interesting. Oh yeah. 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 Well, so, so one of the five albums that I did during this, um, pandemic, um, uh, was a, my, my first jazz album, 
which is, well, it kind of is essentially an album of my favorite tunes. And so some of it is Debussy, Bach, um, Dvorak, but also Cole Porter mm. and Tom Jobim and George Gershwin. And so um, a dear friend of mine, the wonderful composer Carlos Franzetti, is also an amazing jazz pianist and, and um, composer and producer. And he made nine incredible arrangements for this album. So I'm joined by an amazing pianist, Alison Brewster Franzetti, as well as the percussionist Jimmy Musto and Roger Wagner on bass, and then an amazing string quartet from New York. And so together we, we create a, a, a really fun album that will feel more like a jazz set. None of the works are more than three minutes long. So it really has this feeling of going to the blue note, and having a martini and just listening to you know, um, you know, Michael Bublier play the viola or something like that. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. So do you have a sense for when that might be coming out? Or I have a feeling it's going to come out on Sunnyside Records in a year. Okay. Because there's a lot, um, a lot of backlog with the major, art, major labels. But um, on, my, on my YouTube channel, you can find... Um, uh, movements of the album uh, that we did um, in various live venues. So, for instance, you can put in Brett Dubner and Girl from Ipanema, and it'll come yes. up, and it's it's a riot. <laughs> oh, nice! That's definitely definitely a favorite standard out there, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that will be a lot of fun to check out. Well, anything else you would like our listeners to know, or or any parting words? I, I think we've covered a lot. I just wanted to thank <laughs> you for the, the chance to say hello, mm. talk to you, and get to know you. You sound like an amazing uh, mover and shaker out there on the West Coast. So uh, everyone there is lucky to have you. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thanks for all your inspiration. And it's just been wonderful to chat about all of these different topics. I do think we covered a lot. So um, best wishes for these travels you have coming up and um, for the Grammy situation there. I hope those albums are indeed um, picked up and uh, nominated. Maybe, yeah, who knows? From there, we'll see, right? But um, that's just that's wonderful. Yeah, well, until next time. Okay. was just a little taste test of another wonderful track from Brett's Mother Earth album that was track eight. It's the third movement titled Madison from the piece titled Stone Rose. And I hope you will check out all of these wonderful pieces, new pieces. It's so nice to hear music that, although it's nice to hear old music as well, Mozart and Beethoven, Bach and all of this. It's so nice to hear modern classical music and just played so well and I hope you'll check out all of Brett's albums and go to his website brettdubner.com. Brett shared so many wonderful tips and insights and one that really stuck with me was this sort of attitude around setbacks and just not really thinking about them as setbacks 
And that reminded me of when I was a child and my father loved to watch sports. And I remember just really wanting to like play with him or we were going to go somewhere or something and just asking like how much longer until the football game is over. And he'd say, oh, there's only seven seconds left in the game. And I'm thinking, okay, that's like, that'll be over in a flash. And then it's an hour later, (laughs) the football's still on and being really frustrated around football. But at the same time, my father's loving every moment of this, right? And I think just our perception of experience can be so drastically different. So I would encourage you all to find a way to maybe transform your perception of a setback into something that is an opportunity or to transform your perception of a problem into something that is actually going to maybe divert your path a little bit, but sometimes that path needs to be diverted because it's actually the right path for you. And I think his whole idea of like envisioning that ultimate goal, you know, staying strong to that, but at the same time, allowing for the flow of life, right. To meet us and, uh, and for us to dance with that in our journey. I'm sure you'll all have your own takeaways, but that was particularly helpful for me and just a good reminder. And perhaps particularly as we get out of the pandemic, hopefully get out of the pandemic, I think all of us are finding new ways to take our music back out into the world. And it's definitely been something that I've been thinking about a lot, certain things that I want to carry forward from my pre-pandemic life and things that I'm ready to let go of or Maybe I I wanted to let go of before, but I just didn't really allow myself to think about it that much. I was just sort of, you know, going through the motions. So I'm getting a little bit more clear with what that next stage will be for me. And uh, maybe this is a good opportunity for all of us to reevaluate. So again, I'm Laurel Thompson, and I appreciate you listening to this slightly longer interview episode. I will have more coming soon as well as the shorter sort of technique episodes and um, episodes that are stemming from the Violin Geek blog. So stay tuned. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for me, please email me at laurel at laurelthompson.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N.com. My website, of course, is laurelthompson.com. And if you're interested in any of my educational offerings, including my courses or um, virtual teaching via Skype, Zoom, and uh, FaceTime, you can head over to laurelthompson.com or send me an email and we will see what we can do. So until next time, I hope you're all doing well, staying safe, and happy practicing.